definitely going on the beginning of the episode. <laughs> what? Are we recording? It's going to be my new thing. Slurping tea. Oh, oh look at that. I read up to that point. Oh, that's 13. I stopped. Why did you stop? <laughs> Gosh, you, I stopped at the Red Ghost and his super apes? I only bought this book so we could do these stupid issues. John. I know you don't mean that. Mr. Let's do a Fantastic Four podcast next. You know, that's the drugs talking. <laughs> we still haven't done one of the where I do a whole episode in an accent. I live in hope. I know we've talked about it. And I popped them out at home. My kids think it's hilarious. But... Nope. You kids like it? I was watching. Think uh... how many. We'll have three more listeners if you do it. <laughs> I was watching an episode of Guy's Grocery Games on um, Food Network. I have no Network. idea what that is. Yeah, Food Network game show with Guy Fieri. Okay. And one of the contestants was this Italian guy. His name was Massimo, I believe. And he did like the most stereotypical Italian thing. After he made a mistake, he went, Mamma Mia! He did not. He did. I looked at Tammy and I went, Oh, it's a Mario! <laughs> An entire country of people were like, Oh, thanks a lot, dude. It's a me, Mario! <laughs> That's wonderful. It was bad. He lost. Can't overcook lobster, man. That's just bad. Nobody wants to eat tough lobster. Sure. That was the name of my band in high school. When top scientist Reed Richards led his team of explorers into space, they were blasted by a shower of cosmic rays. Endowed with incredible powers, their lives would change forever as they became the Fantastic Four. Hey, I'm Jason. Hi, I'm John. Welcome back to Year One Comics. Thank you, Jason. Sure. Have a seat. Get something to drink. Oh, can I? <laughs> Light a pipe. Put on your professor jacket. Mm. Much better, yes. That's good. Your phone's ringing. Yeah, it's my mom. <laughs> I'll leave that in for the one listener out there, for my sister, to be like, of course it's mom. She knows how she calls Inopportune me. moments. What are we doing today? Are we on... Uh, issue 11. Are we on almost done? This is the penultimate issue of the first year. Was this the one I said was the worst? Oh, no, that was the last one, and you made me keep reading. Because this one is great, I think we can all agree. This one is actually two stories. This one, we should probably say, is Fantastic Four number 11 from February of 1963. And Jason, you get two stories here for the price of one story. Well, kind of. You get like a fake story up front where they try to explain things, and then you get kind of a story that's dumb. And then I have notes for the next issue, and I have like four lines of notes. So the next episode's going to be fantastic. Well, they're all fantastic. Oh, yeah. I left that open for you, didn't I? You kind of did. All right. What are we doing? So... There's things going on. All right, so we start here with our first story. What's on the cover? I didn't see it. The cover shows the Fantastic Four. Oh, well, that just gives stuff away. Menaced? Menaced by a green dude with a football head? Yeah. <laughs> yes, a green dude with a head like a football. Mm. But we're not going to talk. We're not going to deal with that yet. The issue doesn't start with him. No, it starts with that sidebar on the bottom of the cover. Yes, it starts with the sidebar on the bottom mm. of the cover. It starts with a action-packed mm. escapade. Yep. It's called A Visit with the Fantastic Four. This is what we've been waiting for. It is. So, it has all led up to this. It, it really has. So it's New Comic Book Day at the local newsstand. Now It's a Wednesday? Well, now, kids, back when this book was published, there was no New Comic Book Day at the comic book store because, Jason, there weren't comic book stores. There weren't. Where'd you get your comics? Wait, is that a comic book store? 
No. Well, you said it's new comic book day. They're outside. It's like well, a newsstand. Well, that's because there are no comic book stores. You would go to the news. You remember this from the 60s. You would go to the newsstand. <laughs> what are you suggesting? And you would get your new comics. I mean, technically, when I first got my comics, I got them from a supermarket or from a place called the News Center. Do you remember the News Center? No. I mean, I'm not going to, because, you know, we have international listeners. I don't want to bore them with our local neighborhoods. <laughs> oh, Jason. But it was a place that sold magazines and books and greeting cards and nick, knickerbucker, nicky knack things. I'm relatively sure it's too late to worry about boring our listeners. <laughs> anyway, they had a spinner rack there, and I used to get my Richie Rich comics from there. A spinner rack? What mm. is this What is this technology of which you speak? An extinct animal. What was this rack of spinning? <laughs> Seriously? It was a metal tower that had comics on it in little uh, shelf-like holders, and you spun around to look at all the new ones. That were on. Look, I just did that. You can't see what I'm doing, but I'm mimicking a spinner rack. Wow. Or I'm mimicking a cuckoo symbol while I'm looking at John. <laughs> This is how you got comics before the advent of comic book stores, which didn't really pop up until the 1980s. A little bit in the late 70s, you know, but that was mostly like old used bookstores and antique stores that happened to sell comics. Yes. It wasn't until the direct market popped up in what, like 83? Was it 84? that late? It was before that. Well, the first comic book that was direct market only was Dazzler. And I think that was 1983. Well, that was direct market only. Sure. I'm not saying there weren't. There wasn't a direct market before that, but it wasn't very well established, let's say. Okay. We'll say Anywho, that. not important. I'm trying to figure out why the town crier there has ripped the letters page out of a comic and is holding it up. Well, I think he it's has. Not a good advertisement for the comic if you just ripped out a page that has all words on it. I don't think he's ripped it out. I think he has, and this is. Don't. Don't you say it. I think he has folded the issue mm, back. No. Yeah, these obviously these children are savages. That is not near mint. <laughs> no, no. They would be tarred and feathered by any comic book store enthusiast. You know what he probably did with that afterwards? Probably went home and made like some paper mache head for himself. And this, set it on fire and pretended to be the human torch. And that's why Fantastic Four issue 11 is actually worth money, whereas your copy of X-Men number one from 1990 is worth crap. Ugh. What we find is the Fantastic Four are going to the newsstand because they want the new issue of their comic book has come out and they want a copy, which makes me say, really? They don't get comps? I mean, writers and artists in Marvel get comps for their books. They often get comps for books they don't even work on. They don't comp the FF? Does they Casper would... the Friendly Ghost get comps of his comic book? Jason. Come on, tell me he's not real. He's not real. <laughs> not like Reed, Sue, Johnny, and Ben. They are real. Look, they're right there. They're right. I am still, we are in the 11th issue, and I still do not understand why they walk around in disguises. Although, to be fair, three of them aren't really in disguise. They're just in clothes. I was going to say, I don't think those are disguises. Those are what we call civilian clothes. I just don't understand it. Well, okay, then I just don't understand why the Thing is still trying to cover up the fact that he's the Thing. Yeah, I really don't either. They're famous enough, and they have their own comic book series. And I think we all know that nothing catapults you to bigger fandom than having a comic book series. It's true. Look at Conan. O'Brien, I meant. Oh, wait. But it does surprise me. I mean, Brad gets comps for the paper that he runs his ad in. He just runs an ad. These people are actually the stars of this comic. When I had my comic book store and I ran an ad in one of those coupon magazines, they cut out a copy of my coupon and put it in a little paper frame and brought it over to my store so I could put it on the counter. Nice. You notice that there's a policeman here reading comic books. As you do. You also notice there's no thievery going on there, right? No. Because, That's why. Because they're afraid that the policeman will... I think he'll be so engrossed in the Fantastic Four comic, he wouldn't even notice if they stole the entire store out from under him. I mean, he doesn't even notice the Fantastic Four is right behind him. Because he's engrossed in the comic. Mm. 
It's probably much more interesting than the actual Fantastic Four. In the 1960s, comics were mostly for kids. Like, it was unusual, I believe, for adults to be reading comics. But I have to believe if you lived in a world where they were making comics about real people, you might be more likely to read them. Though at the same time, I have to believe that if they were making comic comics about, I don't know, who's a real person they could make comics about? Kanye West. I would not read that. See? I remember in the... Late 80s, they did that line of rock and roll comics. Yeah, they didn't do well, did they? They did not, although they weren't put out by a major publisher, so that's probably part of it. And also, if Kanye West could burst into flame and and fought criminals, maybe I would read his comic. Maybe someone could burst him into flame. (laughs) We're not advocating that. Please don't tap my phones. I didn't say the president. I said Kanye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he and the president are like that. That's true, yeah. So the FF come upon a group of kids playing Fantastic Four. In the most pathetic way possible. Yes. The Human Torch has sparklers. The yeah. Child Human Torch has sparklers. The and Mr. he's F- jumping off a barrel to make it look like he's flying. The Mr. Fantastic Kid has <laughs> gloves attached to... Big, long sticks. Big, long sticks. And he has them stuffed up the uh, arms of his uh, sweatshirt there. He may be a WMPT because I, I mean, how far up are they stuffed in his in his shirt? And the Thing Kid just basically <laughs> has stuffed his shirt with pillows and wore a Thing mask. And the Invisible Girl is that a Thing mask? I believe it looks like a cat. Is that? <laughs> it was orange. It's a Garfield mask that he got on clearance. <laughs> Look, it's I'm orange. The thing. Ah, I hate Mondays. <laughs> I bet the Thing does hate Mondays. I love how the Invisible Woman Girl is just hiding behind a lamppost. Yeah, that's how she becomes the Invisible Girl. She should have just wandered off. No one would have known. (laughs) (laughs) And the FF come upon them, and they're all like, look, we have superpowers, and you don't, stupid kids. And the Thing destroys the lamppost to show he has superpowers, which makes me wonder, how much public property does he destroy on a weekly basis? A lot. That's at least the third lamppost. What is Reed Richards doing? Those aren't stretch arms. Look at these. These are my real stretch arms. And what is the point of Sue? You want to be invisible like me? Look, I'm invisible. You can't be. (laughs) What? Did she make just her head visible? Is her head floating in front of that poor seven-year-old girl? <laughs> she is going to have nightmares tonight. <laughs> well done, taunting the youth. The FF don't get co- copies of their comic book, which I thought was the whole reason they came out here, and wander back to the Baxter building where we're introduced to perhaps the most important character in FF lore. Stan Lee. It's Willie Lumpkin. No. Oh. The mailman. The FF's mailman, Willie Lumpkin, who is an older gentleman who can wiggle his ears. Sidebar, he was portrayed by Stan Lee in the Fantastic Four movie. He was. Sidebar, sidebar, he was actually a character Stan Lee had created for a comic strip, a newspaper comic strip that he had created, oh, probably three years before this came out. Stan Lee was constantly trying to do things above and beyond the Fantastic Four. Well, sorry, not just Fantastic Four, but comics in general. They all failed horribly. And his newspaper strip was one of those. And Wait, he- Willie Lumpkin, international super postman, didn't take off? <laughs> It is surprising. And no, it did not. Mm. So he imported him here. We also find out, have we found out this out before, that the FF, their elevator, can only be activated? Yes. And oddly enough, it's only the invisible woman that's ever done it. So yeah, she uses her belt buckle thing to activate. They have a belt buckle receiver. What do they do if she's not with them? Well, yeah, especially the thing who doesn't wear a belt. I mean, he doesn't even wear pants. He'll just rip the door off and, what, wait for the elevator? I don't (laughs) know. Climb up the cables, maybe? He's not going to do that. Pull the cable down? The whole point of this is that the FF get a lot of mail because people love them. Oh, right. Yeah, we forgot to mention that part. Willie Lumpkin gave them a giant sack of mail. So they head back up to their headquarters 
where the thing gets a present from the Yancey Street Gang. It's a boxing glove that whaps him in the noggin. And I know we've talked about the Yancey Street Gang before. Did we? I feel like they were brought up at some point, but... I believe we did. No, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, we talked... Like, like issue four? Or... I think we talked about them already. It doesn't matter. They're not important. They really aren't important. And then Reed says, Thing, don't be upset. Look, I have a formula that will cure you for probably at least three pages. Hold on a second. He gets smacked in the face by this boxing glove that comes out of the box that he opens. And then in the next panel, he's smashing a dumbbell? He's Where own... did that come from? That's his own dumbbell. He wasn't holding that. But he's... It wasn't even sitting on the table where they dumped the mail out. Where... I'd like to point did out... Did he have it up his ass? What... <laughs> I'd like to point out that... Please don't give us an explicit. And also that I don't have... We don't have any backgrounds. So as far yeah, no, as we know, they're in a just gym. Like color. He's just floating in space. So yeah, Reed gives the thing a new potion that will turn it back to the to uh, Ben Grimm for probably at least three pages. And everybody's like, oh, look, you're so, you're so handsome. You're very optimistic. And Johnny Storm is like, I don't really care about this. And he leaves. And we wish we could go with him. Wait, did he quit the team again? No, he oh. just went to work on his new TR4. Do you know what a TR4 is? Is it something where they can uh, shoot womp rats? <laughs> yes. No. It's a British sports car made by the Triumph Motor Company. It was made from 1961 to 1965. I'm going to assume it was the fourth car that they ever made. Codenamed Zest. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that a, a bar of soap back in the 80s? <laughs> yes. With Johnny gone. With Johnny gone, Ben Grimm stands around in the background in his underwear. <laughs> Why is he just standing there? Read just it. waiting to turn back into the thing. Read and, ben. <laughs> Read and Ben decide this is a great time to do some flashbacking. Ah, yes, an origin recap. Just what we needed in this issue. Though we do find out that, first of all, Reed smoked a pipe in college. How many 17-year-olds are there that smoke pipes? It's the most pretentious thing I've ever seen in my life. I can't see the elbows of his jacket. Do they have suede patches on them? You're right. We can't see them. But I'm not sure he's a professor. Or, I'm sorry, a scientist. <laughs> We had mentioned before that originally Ben Grimm's role as a member of the Fantastic Four was he was just a test pilot they hired. But this is one of the issues that begins to cement his ties to the team more closely. He was Reed's college roommate. He was a football star and a test pilot, or not a test pilot, but a uh, naval pilot during World War II, while Reed was an intelligence officer during World War II. Working with the underground. The Mole Man. And then Reed says, yeah, World War II, that, that was no fun. No bueno, I didn't like it. But luckily I could think of Sue, the girl who promised herself to me. And Sue's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Promise is a strong word. Back off, buddy. I haven't seen a framed photo of Sue on your desk. <laughs> so that gives them a chance to do the true origin uh, recap. <laughs> uh, we're on issue 11 and we've recapped their origin at least three times. Again, I'd like to point out that there were no trade paperbacks in those days or Wikipedia that you could go to to learn what happened in the first 10 issues. How so did they, they ever get anything done? Well, I think we saw this in The Avengers. They did not. There were a lot of recaps in that <laughs> series as well. And I don't think we need to talk about the recap because we recapped it. And besides, I think we need to talk about the tragic events after the recap when we find out that some readers don't like Sue and think she contributes nothing. Wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that people from the early 60s didn't think a woman could pull her own weight as a superhero? It's hard to believe. I know. Stop the presses. But Sue, in an attempt to prove them wrong that she is a strong character, begins to cry. <laughs> and, well, I mean, to be fair, she covers her face. It is true. Does she think she's invisible? <laughs> and then that last... Oh, no. Are they speaking directly to the readers now? They are speaking directly to us, the uh... readers. Ah. 
this is an animal, man. <laughs> if only. <laughs> and to say, this isn't interesting. <laughs> That's what we should do. We should do the first 12 issues of Grant Morrison's Animal Man. Mm, I might have those. Sorry, we've been trying to figure out what we're going to do after we're done with this tedious podcast. That is, yeah, that's not why we're here today. But I like, but of course, no one would listen to Animal Man podcast. Mm. Anywho, Reed and Ben are going to explain to us why Sue is helpful and useful on the team. Yes, but first, Ben's going to turn back into the thing. No, no, that's that's later. Wait, wait, this all happens in those three panels. This is their explanation, and then he turn he gets angry because people don't like Sue, and that's what helps him turn back into the thing. Mm. So, why do they think Sue should be on the team? I don't know. I didn't read this. Didn't she help him once? She flipped a switch while she was invisible or tripped somebody? They do point out that she... she pushed the ether button in the Baxter building? <laughs> they do point out that she has been helpful in various capacities. She made coffee. In various issues that she... <laughs> she sewed their clothes. She helped fight the scrolls. She saved them from Doctor Doom. But it's before that that Reed makes an analogy which kind of lives in infamy amongst comic fans or at least fantastic four fans it's something about a woman in a refrigerator no i'm gonna read you oh, that's a dc thing sorry i'm gonna read you well it's an any it's an anywhere thing but i'm gonna read you reed's explanation and you let me know if it makes sense to you see this bust of abe lincoln remember done his, i got it <laughs> remember his famous remark about his mother the time he said that all that he was all that he ever hoped to be he owed to her lincoln's mother was was the most important person in the world to him but she didn't help him fight the Civil War. She didn't split rails for him. She didn't battle with his enemies. And then Ben Grimm chimes in with, In fact, if we printed Lincoln's life in our mag, some wise guy would probably write it and ask why we don't leave his mother out of the story because she doesn't do enough. I A couple points here. First of all, Sue is not their mom. <laughs> Secondly... In anything I've ever read about Lincoln, I don't remember them ever mentioning his mother. And I'm pretty sure if they wrote an Abraham Lincoln comic book and he had adventures, she wouldn't be there with him. Yeah, I think I agree with you. This is the problem is it's not uh, it's not an apples to apples comparison. No, not at all. Lincoln, It's like apples to fire engines. I'm not sure. <laughs> They're not even in the same family. Lincoln says that he owes himself to his mother because his mother helped shape him. Right. What he has become is thanks to her. She was formative for him. Sue was not formative for Reed and Ben since she's like 10 years younger than they are. And they didn't know her when they were kids. It's a horrible comparison. And it's not even like they both pined over her. It was just Reed. Yeah. Being sad. If you're going to make an argument that Sue should remain in the book, I think the argument is just that Sue does contribute, which she has. She did help them fight the scrolls. She did help save them from Doctor Doom. She did open the door when they were all suffocating to death. She has she did stop them from killing the Submariner when he threatened to make their movie. <laughs> I don't remember exactly how that worked out, but teach them. point is she has contributed. I would go with that, not she's like Lincoln's mother. But this Lincoln's mother argument that Reed makes, again, is somewhat infamous. But as we mentioned, the thing gets very upset as they're defending Sue and turns back into the thing, which makes me wonder. I think so he should have stopped as half thing. That's terrifying. <laughs> he did. He did stay as Ben Grimm for a little while. So is Reed on? It seems like Reed's on the right track here. And it makes me think... could he, he give him some sort of skin lotion? Isn't that what it was? He poured something in his hand. And I think he did. Some sort of chemical reaction. It makes me wonder, couldn't Reed just give him a bigger dose? I'm also wondering, did he turn back into Thing because he got angry? Well, I'm not sure. Is he the well, Hulk? Again, if we look at what, what John Byrne will tell us in the 80s, he turned back into Thing because this is all a mental block. Not because, you know, according to John Byrne, he could always turn back into Ben Grimm. 
this is always just a mental block. And Reed's known about it since, like, three days after the rocket crash. It's like a erectile dysfunction? Something like that. I still think that Reed should at least be able to turn him back into Ben Grimm long enough to, like, have sex or something. Like, it doesn't have to be, you know, for days at a time, but... Like Viagra, if it lasts for more than four hours, he should go see a doctor. Just after he turns back into Ben Grimm, uh, the alarm goes off in the spaceship that they brought back with them from Planet X after they helped out Kurgo, or did not help out Kurgo. And there's a birthday cake for Sue. Ah. <sighs> A very odd birthday cake that changes the lettering on top of it from one panel to the next. And she says, how did, come on. She said, didn't Jack Kirby drew me? He didn't letter it. The poor Artie Simon alone. Okay. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess when Kirby drew it, he just drew a blank cake. And mm-hmm. then Artie Simon couldn't put the same message on a cake in two consecutive panels. It's not even like they were on different pages. <laughs> They're right next that. to each other. It's not just different font. It's one says happy birthday to Sue, and the next panel it says happy birthday, Susan. I also like that the thing, the thing, Sue says, I'm so choked up, I don't know what to say. And the thing says, first time I ever heard a female admit a thing like that. Mm-hmm. Ah, the 1960s. Now go stand in the corner. <laughs> ah, misogyny. In any case, what we... Am I, what am I looking at in that last panel? Uh, Willie Lumpkin heading back to the Baxter building with another huge bag full of mail. His knees are buckled like he's trying not not to pee himself. (laughs) Well, he is an old man. He could be incontinent. (laughs) And that's halfway through the magazine. Not only is this the first issue where we've had two separate stories, but Jason, it's a two-page Fantastic Four fan page. So pretty much they hit their stride in issue 10 and then couldn't figure out what to do with issue 11. Do you think maybe this was running late? I don't know what you're talking about. Why? We should, while we're here... I didn't us running late. I meant that. <laughs> since, the, since we have two separate stories, I think we should go ahead and hit the fan page now while we're here, right? Yeah, I mean, otherwise we'd just slow this train down and we wouldn't want that to happen. Larry Tucker of Wichita Falls, Texas, points out that the characters have changed already since the first issue. Did you say Wichita? Wichita <laughs> Falls, Kansas. No, Texas. Wichita? Wait, what did I say? It's Wichita. Wichita Falls, Texas. Wichita. All right. Wichita. If you live in Wicketow Falls, can't you Texas. don't even know where it is. <laughs> I haven't even been drinking yet. I was uh I was on my way over here and they uh I was driving in the car and the radio did one of those um traffic reports and they talked about uh an accident on the bridge over the Cocalico Creek. Cocalico. Not Cocalico, the Cocalico. I have no idea what you're talking about. Never mind. We have a creek named the Just edit that out. It was funny to me. <laughs> Guy's doing the report. He couldn't even pronounce the name right. Cocalico. So Larry Tucker of Wichita Falls, Texas, says that the characters have already changed a lot since the first issue. And they have. There weren't really characters in the first issue. I'm not sure what they were. But to call them, they didn't really have much in the way of personalities. Or they all had one personality trait and that was it. So instead of characters, they were caricatures. There you go. He also suggests that Lon Chaney Jr. should play the thing in the movie. Which I guess, in a time before visual effects, he would be one of your better He seems kind of, kind of tall to play a thing. The thing doesn't strike me as particularly tall. I mean, depending on the panel that Kirby draws him in. Sometimes he does. <laughs> Never that's, mind. That's the problem, isn't it? William Paul of Fall River, Massachusetts... Has two first names. ...says he used to throw comics away when he was done with them. Again, a very good reason why comics from this time period are worth money, and comics from after the 60s are not. Usually. Some some of the 70s are. And we actually find out the ages of all the characters. Reed Richards is 74. <laughs> In response to Betty Dill's letter from Indianapolis, Indiana, we find out 
that Johnny is 17, which concerns me again when he talked a few issues ago about being glad he doesn't have to worry about girls. Uh, by 17, you should have hit puberty. Sue is 10 years younger than Reed. Is this one of those... It's one of those puzzles. <laughs> person A is 10 years older than person B. Well, and the problem with that is, <laughs> who again... Who is three times younger than... Reed says he was in love with her when before he went off to war, at which point in time it was after college. She probably was 22 at the at the, at the oldest, mm. which means she sweet, was Sweet, sweet Lolita. <laughs> I'm a little worried about that. Even if, let's say, on the outside, Reed was 25 when he went away to war. She was still only 15, it's really kind of creepy. Did he go to war after? He went after college, Yes, right? he did. Maybe he stayed for a doctorate. Maybe he was like 30 when he got out of... Did it say how old he is? Or it just says that she's ben, 10 years Mr. younger? Mr. Fantastic and Ben Grimm are in their late 30s. Wow. That's something. It is something. I mean, you think about all the comics that came after this. And I mean, maybe it's because of the age I was when I was reading them. But I just assumed all of these people were like, you know, early to mid 20s. I believe that at this point in time, Marvel was using the actual timeline of the real world right. for their characters. Yeah, we discussed that before. Because at this point, they'd both be in their 80s. Yeah, they obviously did not serve in World War II. If you read their origin now, they did not serve in World War II. So if that's the case, and this is 1963, then they were probably born about 1926 if they're in their late 30s. So 1926 means they went to war if they went in 1940 when they were, that would be 14. That doesn't work. That can't possibly work. No, they'd have to be at least 18. But they said they went after college. Even if they were born in 25, they would have only been 20 and 45. When did we enter World War II? 41? Yeah, they would have had... To, I don't really know why we're spending so much time on this, except... This because all... it doesn't make sense, and you would think that Stan Lee could have mapped that out. You would think. I guess why I'm trying to make it make sense is I'm trying to find some way where it is not creepy as hell that Reed Richards loved Susan Storm before he went to war. And I do not see it. I mean, no one... She promised him she'd stay with him because she was 12. Of course she did. What does she know? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. 1963 now, they're in their late 30s. Yeah, they would have had to have been born in the mid, early to mid-20s. Yes. To go to war, they would have had to have been born at like 1920, which would make them over 40 at this point in time. Well, I was just thinking if they were in their late 30s in 1963, then they would have to have been born in the, even being nice, like late 30s could be 36 years old. Yeah. That's 1927? No. Yeah, 27. Mm -hmm. Which means in <clears throat> 1942, they'd have been 15. In 1945, they would have been 18, but they went to war after they got out of college. Yeah, this the ages don't work at all. No, they can't be in their late 30s and have and have been in World War II and college. Yeah, if you, yeah, you really you get to pick one or the other. Unless they got to college and then got drafted immediately, but well, that's it says they graduated college when they were very young. How young? 15, 16? Look, there's no way that Reed Richards and Ben Grimm were both on the same track to graduate <laughs> college early. One of them just got hit in the head a lot, and the other one actually studied. We actually have a letter in this letter column from Johnny Storm, who lives in San Pedro, California. Who knew? It's not a very interesting letter. I just thought it was interesting that Johnny okay. Storm wrote to the letter column. David Lancaster of Fort Worth, Texas is the president of Save the Torch Drive. Oh, God. He wants them to not kill the human torch, mm -hmm. to which their response is, we, we killed kill the torch? Who said we were going to kill the torch? People are weird. Isn't he the only character that they actually end up killing? Oh, all the FF die. We'll talk about that next episode. But all the FF have died at least once, except maybe Sue. Really? 
I can only remember. Well, which one of them? I mean, Torch stuck for a while, but he that did. was just recently. Yes, it was recently. And Sherman Howard of Cleveland, Ohio, believes that to have your own comic, a hero has to have a wide array of powers. And I was just wondering if you agreed with that statement. Do you think that you need a wide array of powers to make... I mean, Spider-Man has a wide array of powers. Batman has a wide array of gadgets. <laughs> and no powers. Superman has a wide array of powers, even if he doesn't use them all, all the time. I mean, I guess if you if we sat here and went through them all... But then you have people like Iron Fist, Power Man, or Luke Cage. Well, what was his, what was his sentence again? Does it have to be a successful superhero? Because you're naming a bunch of people who's like, you know, they keep trying to make titles and they never quite make it. I realize that a hero by himself has to have a certain number of gimmicks or powers to sell magazines. A prime, and then he goes on to say that this is why the Human Torch doesn't work on his own. Because he has one power. The only other one I could think of as an example would be the Flash. Who oh, just runs really fast. That being said, they have always come up with different ways to use those right. super speed powers. Like I can spin in a circle and make a cyclone. Or yeah, you're I can right, though. He runs backwards only... and change time. I don't... <laughs> he has only one power, but a lot of gimmicks. Yeah. I mean, it's, when you think about it, the, the heroes with one power and really just one trick ponies, I, I can't think of one that has had a successful. Oh, I can. Who? The Punisher. Uh, I mean, yeah. really, he just has guns. Yeah. Sure, they're different guns, but they're just guns. That's a good point. And he lasts for a long time. Yeah. Eventually. Not when he first debuted. He was pretty stupid. You mean it's Amazing Spider-Man? Number 129, yes. Where uh, there was a hammerhead issue. He was just hired as a hitman. Yeah, by the Jackal, if memory serves. You are correct. Anywho, that's it for the letters. But before we get to the second story, we have... More letters. pinup oh, page. Wait. Oh, we get to see a pinup of Namor in his undersea lair. That is not a real pinup because I don't see Sue's frame photo in it. <laughs> All right, now we get to the real meat of this issue, the excitement that is the Impossible Man. Our story starts in a hobo jungle. Jason, what's a hobo jungle? I don't know. My my favorite part is in that in that second panel where the guy says, "Listen, cornball, we're legitimate hobos. <laughs> legitimate <laughs> hobos." <laughs> It's in my notes, too. What is an illegitimate hobo? I'm not... Legitimate hobo should have been my high school band name. That <laughs> would be the best band name. We're yeah. legitimate. You can't be a fake hobo. How dare you? <laughs> Nobody's concerned that this dude just dropped out of the sky and that he's a green guy with a football head dressed in a leotard. They're just like, hey, don't try to be a hobo. Whatever you are. <laughs> If you're not certified by the state, you are not a hobo. <laughs> I don't see your hobo license. Yes, the impossible man pops up, pops up, drops out of space. And we see, originally he just drops down as a humanoid. And basically he wants to know where he is, what is there to do. They tell him he needs to go get some cash. So he transforms himself into a rocket ship and flies over to a bank where he keeps transforming himself into different objects. And then he goes and grabs sacks of cash and leaves with it seemingly not understanding that this is against the law or that there are laws or which is weird since he speaks english very well the police try to stop him but he turns into some sort of bulletproof steel so that their bullets don't hurt him i would also like to point out that oftentimes people talk about how police brutality <laughs> or how you know police these days may sometimes use undue force when it's not necessary and i would like to point out that this green guy who looks like he weighs about 90 pounds 
is not very big or muscular and has no visible weapons and is carrying his hands are full of huge sacks of cash the police tell him to stop and he walks towards him and they just unload on him with machine guns he's not hurt anybody yet he's not been a threat to anybody yet well he's not white Uh, yes well it's true let's be honest here i'm still trying to figure out which part of him is a costume and which part is his actual skin i believe the purple is the costume though the no, green but look at look... the green around his yeah, shoulders and that it looks like fabric but then there's no delineation between his neck and his chest and his shoulder so he's he's basically it's like he put on a, an ent- a big green bodysuit and then put a, a purple overalls on top of that <laughs> And boots. It's not a good look. The police, I'm sorry, the deputy police inspector calls in the Fantastic Four to help by telling them it's a code five. Mm. Stanley loves, we remember this from the Avengers, loves codes and numbers that make no sense. And I'm wondering, do they have a code for alien green man with a head like a football that's robbing a bank? Yes, it's code five. (laughs) Apparently. Quick, jump in the bathtub and fly over there. Which they do. They find him eating. You know, I'm looking at Impossible Man's eyebrows, and I'm wondering if it's just Namor in disguise. (laughs) That would be pretty spectacular. Is he only allowed to eat things that are shaped like his head? (laughs) No, because he eats eats pie over here, so it's not just watermelon. And the corn on the cob is the same shape, too. The Fantastic Four walk over, and they ask him, what's up with you? And he explains his origin. Sure. I'm looking at it. it. It's... Yeah, he comes from a planet with a bunch of dangerous things on it. The planet Pop-Up. According to him, their world is so dangerous that they their evolutionary processes are so swift, they can change themselves into anything in order to survive the menaces which constantly attack them. I don't think Stanley understands evolution. Or comic books. <laughs> The whole point of evolution is that you, you evolve slowly over time, in, in usually in response to a single stimuli. Well, he did say that they've it's a rapid evolution. It's a very rapid, they've instantaneous inst- evolution. But the other problem with that is that... Oh, there's only one other problem with that? <laughs> is that he's suggesting that when dangers come at them, they evolve to protect themselves from it. Kind of like the, the mutant character Darwin. Yes. However... He changes shape whenever the crap he feels like it, danger or no danger. He's constantly in danger. (laughs) Of boredom. Danger of dying of boredom. Danger of not being an ass. So he has to become one. So the FF try to explain to him, dude, you can't just do whatever you want. The thing gets upset and tries to hit him. The impossible man turns his head into spikes. And the fight is on. Yes, because there's a strange and different being. Let's attack it. The Human Torch flies at him while flamed on, and the Impossible Man turns himself into a giant container full of water and douses the torch. And I don't understand how that works, because did he turn himself into water? Because he turns himself back into the Impossible Man, and there's still water on the ground. So he's losing bits of himself. Yeah, a lot of himself, and he wasn't that big to begin with. Or did he just, like, pee all over the Human Torch? Is that what that is? There's no water around him, is there? Mm -mm. No, I mean, we don't see any. Other than maybe something sitting on the table. But yeah, yeah, that's a problem. It's a big problem. Mr. Fantastic tries to grab him. He doesn't have much luck. He turns into a missile and starts shooting around the restaurant. And as usual, Sue decides to use her powers in that way she always does, where she decides to stop a missile or a fast-moving object by standing in front of it invisibly so it can't see her. But somehow it senses, the impossible man senses her at the last minute and turns himself into a bunch of flowers. 
So we know he doesn't want to hurt him. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. So the FF basically continued to fight him. I hate this character so much. He doesn't understand. The Impossible Man doesn't understand why the Earthlings aren't turning into other things. It finally comes to... He finally gets it that, oh, I'm the only one on this planet that can do what I can do. Everybody else can't turn into anything they want. And so he starts basically going on joyrides, stealing cars, fighting the FF. Just generally being a jerk. Fighting the military. Nobody can stop him. And then Mr. Fantastic comes up with an idea, which is that... <laughs> Let's ignore him and he'll just go away. Exactly. The Impossible Man is here because he's bored. We ignore him. He'll finally, you know, if we don't provide him with amusement, he'll get tired of us and go away. Wasn't that what he said on the first page of this story when the Impossible Man was coming towards Earth? Didn't he say something about wanting to be on vacation? Or... Mm-hmm. Yes. The Impossible Man says has said more than once in this issue that he's taking a vacation because his world is too dangerous. Reed Richards convinces... I really don't... I'm sorry to interrupt no. you. I really don't understand how his world is so dangerous. If he's able to do what he does here on Earth, can he just do that on his own? Yeah, he can, which you're right, means it's not really that dangerous for him. I mean, he's one of those characters that's so powerful that he's annoying. Yes. And Reed manages to convince the Fantastic Four and then every single person on the planet... Yep, because everyone was watching the news that day. <laughs> To ignore the Impossible Man. In every country, in every language. And so the Impossible Man, after, I don't know, a week, two weeks, three months of the Impossible Man destroying things across the globe, (laughs) we see him screwing up television broadcasts, crashing helicopters. Interrupting boxing matches. Interrupting boxing matches. Everybody ignores him, and the Impossible Man says, I'm bored, and flies away, and says, I'll never come back. Well, that's a lie. And that is issue 11. Pretty exciting issue, isn't it? Oh, are we done? We're done with that issue. But hey, we need to talk about where we go from here because there are three characters. I know where we go from here. Issue 12. <laughs> there are three characters here that we're not going to see again in the next issue. That we is one of them about. Willie Lumpkin? One of them is Willie Lumpkin. Please, go Will- on. So, Willie Lumpkin, the, the comic book strip he was originally created for was by Stanley and Dan DiCarlo. Dan DiCarlo is the Archie From artist. Archie, yeah. Yeah, for years. Originally, the comic strip that he was created for was supposed to be about a policeman. But the comic syndicate told Stanley that police are too urban. <laughs> and they wanted something that would appeal to rural markets. <laughs> rural markets. How about a postman? And so they picked Willie Lumpkin as a postman. He was much younger in the strip than he is in the comic book. And that comic ran for about a year and a half. He will pop up in this book occasionally, again and again. In issue, I think, 15, he helps the team beat the Mad Thinker by pressing a button. Oh. Every once in a while, he will pop in and is probably best known. Has his biggest time in the sun when he starts dating uh, Spider-Man's Aunt May Parker. Oh, I thought you were going to say that he punched Galactus in the nads or something. He is now retired, and it's his niece... Wilhelmina Lumpkin, who is their male person. The FF once entered his body to remove a brain tumor. And when they were the future foundation, he worked for them as a teacher. What was he, 120 by then? Yes. Wow. That's why he and Aunt May were so good together. Okay. All right. You said there's three people that we have. The next is the... Wait. Let's go with the Impossible Man. Okay. The Impossible Man... Because I'm sitting here trying to figure out who the third character was. So go ahead. Like Kurgo, what character's... Not quite accurate. Like Kurgo, the Impossible Man looked like he was going to be a one-hit wonder. Nobody was going to bring this bozo back. I mean, technically, he is a one-hit wonder. We just keep seeing him over and over again. <laughs> but in 1976, he came back in an episode or an issue of, I believe, Fantastic Four. It might have been Marvel 2 and 1. We find out that Galactus ate his homeworld, and he is the only Papapian left in the universe. Oh, that's too bad. 
And after that, he would pop back up again on a regular basis. And I think the reason that he worked after that was because writers realized he's not a villain. He's not a hero. He's an annoyance. He's funny. Make him funny. Okay. He's funny. I remember him popping up in issues of uh, you know, when that I say- what the humor magazine well and he had his he had his he had more than one special the impossible man summer spectacular he had like two or three in a row yeah those were uh mid to late 80s somewhere in the 80s (laughs) mid to late 80s 80s, yeah so the 80s (laughs) he eventually will replicate like an amoeba yeah doesn't he have a wife and and a kid the impossible woman and then they will create the impossible kids that all sounds impossible I don't hate the Impossible Man as much as you do. I like him when he's done humorously. There's a great issue of New Mutants, the new, a New Mutants annual, where he and Warlock spend the entire issue fighting to see who's better at changing into stuff. Well, that's entertaining, at least. Yeah, it's fun. The Impossible Man can be used fun. Here's the problem, in my opinion, with this. I- well, here's one of the problems with this issue. The Impossible Man should be a fun character, but Stan Lee can't write funny. Stanley will try to write funny if we ever get around to doing The Amazing Spider-Man. He does a lot of quips for Spider-Man. One in 20 or 30 may land. Most of them are not amusing. I said about how Stanley used to try to always wanted to write other things. One of his favorite things to do is to write books where he would take stills of like uh, monsters, yes. like famous monsters of film. And add hilarious dialogue to them. And they never did that well. And that's because they're not funny. No, not Stan- even interesting. No, Stanley is not a very funny writer. His humor might have worked in the 30s and 40s, but it does not work, in my opinion, by the 60s, and sure as heck doesn't work by the 80s and 90s. On a tangent, though, it's interesting that you bring up the fact that he wrote a bunch of quote-unquote jokes for Spider-Man, because as it, as the years go on, the, Spider-Man becomes known as a as guy a, who never stops talking. Yes, and all the villains get mad at him while he's fighting them because he never stops. And and Stanley started that. His Spider-Man was a chatterbox as well. And he was constantly quipping. They just weren't very funny. Yeah. Most of the time. Every once in a while, he would, he would write one that would land. But it was the exception, not the rule. There have been plenty of writers that are really good at making Spider-Man amusing. He's not one of them. So has Impossible Man shown up recently in anything? I don't believe recently, no. Okay. There's also an interesting article. You know, in case anybody wanted to track that down. <laughs> In the Silver Surfer comic, before Infinity Gauntlet, when Thanos was coming back, the Impossible Man is in that for an issue or two where he tries to convince the Silver Surfer that the only way he can beat Thanos is with a sense of humor because Thanos doesn't have one and neither does the Silver Surfer. Well, that'd be difficult. So he tries to teach him comedy. Mm. The last thing we need to talk about is the Yancey Street Gang. Oh. Because we will not see them again. They will not be mentioned again. But we haven't seen them yet. And rarely do we see them. They usually appear off panels. We don't usually see them as individuals. Eventually, they start out as this joke for the thing. But they do eventually become a little bit more serious. They're not really criminals. They're more like blue-collar rednecks. Doesn't he team up with them in an issue of Marvel 2-in-1? Well, yes. He does work with them at times. We find out eventually that the thing used to be a member of the Yancey Street Gang. And some of them resent him because they left him behind. Occasionally they will help the thing and the FF. Sometimes they will be their guardian angels when they need it. Their ham radio gang. Saying that it's their (laughs) job to torment Ben Grimm. It's not anybody else's. And they have occasionally spotlighted individual members of the NC Street gang, usually trying to reinvent them as kind of like Kirby's kid gangs of the 1940s. Like, hey, it's Specs and Mm. 
you know, like like the Marvel version of the Little Rascals. Exactly. I will say that in the future, there is a retcon that suggests that these packages that the thing gets, like the one that punched him in the face, this issue, were actually sent by Johnny, and he just signed Yancey Street Gang to drive the thing crazy, which I kind of like, but I don't know how. You know, it's not really any more interesting that way. All righty. I think you have to admit this is an offbeat issue. Oh yeah, I right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your typical issue. No. I didn't like it. I like the first part to an extent just because it is so different, but it's not that interesting. Yeah, well, I lost once they started talking directly to the readers. I'm, and the Impossible Man story is just painful because he's not any fun in this story. He's just annoying. No, and they just stretched it out over pages and pages when it could have been solved in like four. Would you keep reading? I gave up last issue. So, and this one's not going to bring you back? No, definitely not. The only thing that would bring me back is we actually, they actually tell us that next issue, they, they tease us what next issue brings, which is going to bring a crossover as they fight the Hulk. So I might come back to see them fight the Hulk. Maybe. Is the Hulk going to be dressed up like a clown? <laughs> <laughs> we can but hope. <sighs> Thanks for listening, everyone. If you uh, want to send us angry emails, our email address is yearonecomics at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram at yearonecomics. We got one more episode left in this miniseries, and I can't wait. Me either. Almost finished. I mean, I can't wait because I'm having so much fun. No, I can't wait because it's almost over. (laughs) All right. See you next time. Bye-bye.